Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Martin Fromm, who is Associate Professor of East Asian History at Worcester State University, and he'll be talking about his new book, Borderland Memories, Searching for Historical Identity in Post-Mao China, which was published this year, 2019, by Cambridge University Press. Most of what one hears about China in the news at the moment relates to the edges of the state or the nation in some way, and to the question of who belongs within the boundaries of either. And although Xinjiang and Hong Kong present settings which are geographically, ethnically and linguistically pretty far from that discussed in this book, Martin Fromm's Borderland Memories has intriguing new light to shed on these pressing contemporary questions. Fromm's study of a trove of documents produced mostly in the 1980s in the far northeastern fringe of China's Heilongjiang province reveals the processes, policies and personal stories underlying the new understandings of China which emerged after the death of Mao Zedong. The author shows how the Chinese Communist Party, paralleling reconciliation processes which were occurring elsewhere in the world at this time, worked to encourage ordinary people to narrate their experiences of life and the tumultuous recent history of the region. In doing so, the authorities sought to author new stories about national, regional, and local identity, the Russian and Japanese roles in the Northeast past, its indigenous residents, and the history of Han migration to the region. All this in turn, as Fromm expertly shows, speaks volumes about how the party managed to retain a grip on its governing role in China, despite the catastrophic policy failures and tragic excesses of the Mao years. Current events in Hong Kong and Xinjiang may indicate that the reform era through whose dawn this book so expertly navigates us is now transitioning to something else. But whatever that is, the understanding we gain from this book of how the Chinese Communist Party operates at times of crisis and how ordinary people understand their place in the nation uh, during these points, these these pivotal points of history uh, will remain very important. But in any case, to talk about these topics and many others, I'll say Martin Fromm, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much for this very generous introduction. Well, it's a pleasure and a great pleasure to have you on and uh, talk about this uh, pretty pretty fascinating topic, which is very close to my own personal interests, I should selfishly point out. Um, <laughs> but uh, before we do get into it, uh, perhaps I should uh, ask you a bit about your, your own background uh, academically and otherwise and how you became interested uh, in this uh, subject. Yes, uh, I would say that it started when I was doing my undergraduate uh, studies at Brown University, and there were two professors who especially inspired me, um, Professor Jeremy Greeter uh, and Richard Davis, and they both had different styles of teaching. Uh, Greeter, what uh, really inspired me about his teaching was his focus on really the kind of personal life stories of uh, of Chinese people, especially intellectuals in his case. Um, he was kind of an old school uh, sort of intellectual history uh, professor, but he uh, but really kind of told these stories in a very 
personal way that made you feel like you got to know these people. Um, Richard Davis also had a very inspiring, very dynamic uh, way of teaching history. And both of these uh, professors really kind of inspired me to get into the field. My original idea of, of uh, what my major would be was environmental law. So I went a pretty, pretty big distance um, toward uh, East Asian history. And then uh, after, so I studied some Chinese language and really uh, began to immerse myself in the culture. I went off to China for two years after undergraduate to teach English as a second language. And, uh, and there I used that as a vehicle for really immersing myself in the culture. And that kind of confirmed my interest in the area. I taught at uh, Nankai University in Tianjin, about an hour mm-hmm. southeast of Beijing. And, uh, and then I went off to graduate school um, at Stanford uh, for East Asian Studies and then Columbia University for Modern Chinese History, where I got my PhD in 2010. Uh, and so during my uh, PhD, uh, during the process of getting the PhD, what the topic I became interested in was migration more generally. I was interested in sort of the cultural, social adaptations that migrants across borders have to undertake as they're, as they're moving into these new regions. And in particular, one massive wave of migration in the early 20th century um, was the Chinese, Han Chinese migration uh, to the Northeast, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Northeast uh, frontier, as you might call it, of Manchuria. And, uh, and so that I decided, since there really hadn't been much written about this wave of migration, I decided that I would, uh, that I would write about it and do some research about it. So I went off to the Northeast uh, to Liaoning province, uh, Shenyang, and during my dissertation research. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and during that time, I really became enamored with the so-called Wenshuds Liao, or cultural and historical materials, uh, which were these kind of life histories of people as they had, you know, had lived their lives. I was particularly interested in people who had migrated up there in the early 20th century. And what particularly fascinated me, even though I was living at the time in Shenyang, which is in the southern part of former Manchuria uh, or the Northeast, uh, what particularly intrigued me were Winshu accounts about the far Northeast, uh, the northernmost province of Heilongjiang, and particularly the farthest Northeast reaches of Heilongjiang near the, uh, near the Russian border. And, uh, and that, that was really these stories of, of cultural uh, interactions with Russians, of uh, gold mining and, and sort of wild uh, adventures through the wilderness and, uh, and these sort of wild frontier stories, but also stories of, of this kind of uh, hybrid culture that was developing on this, in this borderland was so fascinating to me. And I decided that, um, that there had to be a story here that, was, uh, that would be really interesting to tell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there's the, the, the fascination there, and um, you know, however much I guess uh, it it, uh, it shouldn't cloud our, uh, I guess, approach to um, matters that we're studying. A kind of sense of adventure, a sense of mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. that is so captivating, very often I think underlies uh, research, whether it's historical, anthropological, or anything else. I mean, it, it's uh, it, it's something that I think many people have found sustains them uh, through long graduate and. Uh, and post uh, <laughs> uh, post PhD periods, um, but uh, that's that's fantastic. Well, uh, I think a lot of that enthusiasm you felt for that mm-hmm. region uh, comes through in the book. Um, so, as we move into the kind of introduction uh, of the book itself, where you set up uh, 
some of the themes uh, that you've already touched on slightly there, um, you paint a bit more of a picture of, of this region. Um, I think the Northeast, Manchuria, as it is sometimes known to some, um, is an area that, uh, including within China, gets kind of lumped together as a single place. Um, but could you talk a little more about the particularities of, of this northern fringe as it relates to the rest of the Northeast and, and indeed the rest of China? I mean, who, who lives there and, and what's the terrain and, and the landscape like and the particular history of migration? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so the entire Northeast, the so-called what was called the three uh, Northeast provinces of Liaoning, Jilin, and Heilongjiang, uh, so-called uh, East or North of the Pass, um, referring to Shanghai Guan, this pass along the Great Wall, um, was a region that was formerly referred to as Manchuria because of the Manchus' uh, kind of political uh, dominance in the region starting in the uh, 17th century and or even late late 16th century. Uh, and Owen Lattimore, for instance, talks a lot about this region as uh, as this reservoir um, where that has a history of invasions of China proper, um, as it was called. And so he uh, actually interestingly saw the Northeast as a kind of a dangerous, uh, interesting place, but a dangerous place for China where um, where in fact you'd have always always this kind of invaders coming in uh, across the Great Wall. So of course you had the Manchus uh, and and then the communists themselves um, in during the Civil War kind of moved down from the Northeast. Uh, but in any case, so this uh, region of Manchuria was, as I said. Uh, Manchu dominated in many respects, but the, the, the region that I focus on, the so-called northern Manchuria uh, in what's now Heilongjiang province, uh, was by the end of the 19th and early 20th century, uh, really had a lot of Russian influence. So the Russians, uh, they invaded and occupied the region in 1900. Uh, but even before that, in 1898, they built the Chinese Eastern Railroad. Um, the city of Harbin, which is still the most major city in Heilongjiang, uh, became uh, sort of the, the juncture for this railroad expansion of the Russians through Manchuria. They wanted to use it as a kind of a, 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 another way to get to the Pacific uh, and, uh, and to Vladivostok. But in any case... So one distinctive aspect of this northern Manchuria area was the Russian influence. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and this Russian influence really prevailed even after the Japanese signed the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, and the Japanese then uh, took over influence through the southern Manchurian Railroad in the southern part of Manchuria. But in the northern part, uh, the Russians continued to have a dominant influence. Uh, but... What ended up happening was that the very influence of the Russians in building the railroads and building mines and, and, and trying to really develop this whole area actually attracted a huge influx of Chinese migrants um, mm -hmm. in the early 20th century, and especially the railroad building, um, but also other enterprises in the cities and so forth. And so, uh, so this was actually one of the, the ironic or, or the ironies of Russian expansion in the region was that, and one of the things that the Russians actually kind of worried about was that they were trying to send uh, emigres from Russia, uh, particularly ethnic minorities, um, the Jews and Lithuanians and Polish and so forth, uh, to settle, resettle them in Manchuria. Um, mm -hmm. And in the process, however, 
they were actually driving a process of northern expansion of Chinese into the region. Um, right. And and so this uh, there was this confluence, this cultural confluence that was also happening. But at the same time, uh, there were other indigenous ethnic groups, um, the Hoja uh, and the Olenchen, uh, Solon and Dagur and so forth, uh, who were uh, focused on fishing and hunting and so forth, led a somewhat uh, maybe more nomadic lifestyle uh, in the large uh, forests and, and, and river uh, reservoirs of the uh, Songhua Delta and so forth and the Amur and, and Usuri rivers. Uh, and and these ethnic groups in in some ways uh, served as almost a kind of a a mediating point between the Chinese and the Russians. Um, Arseniev was one of the explorers in the region of the Asuri Valley who came and and uh, had a very kind of Russian biased perspective, but saw the Olenchen people as being exploited by Chinese traders. Um, and so there was this kind of a, a tension between the Chinese and these ethnic minorities and the Russians who were both in a sense uh, grappling over this territory and they were kind of caught in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I think another aspect of this region was that from, from the Chinese perspective, this region was a frontier, uh, was a wild frontier. Uh, in Chinese, it was called Chuan uh, uh, meaning kind of bursting through the pass. So migrants would burst through the pass um, up into Manchuria, and this was the wildest part of Manchuria up here in the far northeast. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was where the land was cheapest, where there was lots of timber for for um, for lumber industries and uh, and and mining, gold mining, and so forth. Uh, and so you had this really kind of wild, enterprising spirit, which which in the 1980s, in the context of the 1980s, when people were rem- remembering and recalling their experiences in the early 20th century, was, uh, was in a sense very much in line with the spirit of the times because people after the, after the, the Maoist political campaigns, and after the repressiveness of ideology and, uh, and a sense of ideological vacuum um, after the Cultural Revolution, there was this, this sense of, of a desire for some kind of freedom, uh, mm. some kind of wanderlust freedom from, from party control, from political control and ideological uh, stifling and so forth. Right. And so this landscape, in a sense, became reimagined um, in a way that, uh, that could uh, give people that sense of freedom, that sense of spiritual freedom. Right, right. And I think we'll get into some of the kind of narrative uh, contortions mm-hmm. or the, the devices that, that really reframed this area um, in, in new and fascinating ways uh, in relation both to the very um, uh, urgent political situation there at the end of the Mao period and, and, and sort of looking back to this period of imperial convergence and uh, quite a you know, pretty complex um, multi-ethnic. Uh, mm multilinguistic situation which emerged there as you point out from the late 19th century onwards um, I mean uh, w- w- if we uh, move on to the actual physical records of, 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 of this time or the one that you that you highlight there which form the kind of meat of the of the book um, as you say these were uh, the accounts of many of these hand migrants um, mm-hmm. whose presence in Manchuria I mean some people argue you know it was ultimately what meant that following uh, this sort of century of tumult uh, in the area that this region actually uh, ended up becoming part of China mm-hmm. after 
after having so many uh, competing imperial interests over it, mm-hmm. and the preponderance of uh, of Chinese residents that you mentioned so alarmed the Russians. Um, actually, I think mm-hmm. to expect uh, sealed sealed the position of the. Of the, of the region in relation to China as a whole. Um, but on the subject of the Wenshu Ziliao, um, who was it who, who compiled these? Um, what was the, the project that, uh, that emerged? And, and, and could you just flesh out a, a bit more of, about the background and the, the source material that you, uh, that you deal with here in the book? Sure, yeah. So, so the Winchard's Leal was compiled by an organization, an institution called the People's Political Consultative Conference um, in Chinese called Zhengxia. And, uh, and so this organization actually had a fairly long history uh, in uh, PRC history, but actually even going back to before the PRC in 1940s when the Kuomintang or Nationalist Party of Chiang Kai-shek and, uh, and the Communist Party were trying to seek some kind of a coalition government, uh, some kind of a deal between them. And, uh, and the People's Political Consultative Conference was to be the organization, the institution that would set up a new constitution, um, that would provide uh, uh, different uh, people from the different parties who would who would serve as a kind of coalition government. That, of course, failed, as we know, um, the Civil War. Um, but in 1949, when the Communist Party prevailed and the PRC was established, uh, then Mao decided and the Communist Party decided to keep the PPCC as an active organization, but instead of as a kind of a coalition government, it would act uh, within the framework of the Communist Party as a mediating organization that would mediate between the Communist Party and, uh, and other organizations. Um, actually, it was the one, it was the organization that set up the Constitution uh, and became uh, replaced some of its official functions became replaced by the National People's Congress, mm-hmm. uh, which then took over the actual you know governing and legislative uh, roles. But and and then after that happened in 1954, the PPCC became more of a an informal and symbolic um, organization of bringing people together from different non-party organizations, intellectuals, uh, cultural economic elites who uh, didn't quite fit into the Communist Party uh, and and bring them into the into a kind of a, a united front um, mm. politically speaking and culturally speaking and so starting in 1954 uh, the PBCC which had been a, uh, established at the national level then set up institutions or, or branches at the provincial level the county and city levels uh, and uh, and in the 1950s, they served a number of functions. Uh, one function was as a, uh, a kind of consultative function that these uh, various non-party elites would would serve in an informal capacity to advise the party on certain policies uh, that they were had expertise in. Uh, mm-hmm. They would also serve functions of inspection and recommendation. So they would sometimes uh, the PPCCs would send down uh, or send out. Uh, various teams of local elites with various kinds of expertise. It could be in medicine, it could be in, uh, you know, in the economy or whatever. Uh, and they would go out and do inspections of the various villages and then come back and give a report on how things were going, uh, how policies were being implemented or how well they were being implemented and, uh, and whether there was any resistance. Um, sometimes the reports would actually lead to the party maybe uh, revising some of their policy a little, or the way they implemented the policy at the local level. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But in any case, it was it served as a mediating organization to help the party uh, communicate with and uh, and essentially have a relationship with other parts of society outside of the party. Right. right. Now, in 1959. Uh, at a time when the party was in a new kind of crisis uh, with the Great Leap Forward that was starting to fall apart, uh, and and also with the anti-rightist campaign where uh, tens of thousands of intellectuals were persecuted. Uh, and Zhou Enlai then um, decided that the PPCC could use an added dimension, which was where the Wenchard's Leal came in, the dimension of historical memory. Um, mm-hmm. essentially to uh, not just inspect and consult on current policies, but to essentially construct uh, new historical narratives uh, about mainly the uh, pre-1949 period and, uh, and use this as a way to, first of all, reincorporate intellectuals who had been persecuted um, into the uh, Communist Party framework, uh, or at least as allies to the Communist Party, and also, though, to try to redeem the Communist Party at a time of crisis by, in a sense, uh, uh, trying to to reconstruct the history uh, in a way that would uh, emphasize a continuous liberating function of the Communist Party through history. Uh, mm-hmm. And and Joe and Lai decided that that historical period of recollection should begin about 1898 with the hundred. Uh, 100 Days Reform, which was a failed reform, liberal reform effort uh, staged by reformers Kang Yue and Liang Xichao, uh, and uh, in sort of the last days of the monarchy, and then up until uh, essentially the around uh, 1949. And so that was sort of the idea then, but it got cut short by the Cultural Revolution, uh, when many of the party organs were kind of shut down, uh, and and then was uh, revived uh, very slowly, first actually informally in the 1970s, and then really on a systematic, comprehensive basis in the 1980s, uh, right. where it really became uh, you know comprehensively uh, extended to the uh, to the local level. So, and and in the 1980s, then. Uh, the PPCCs, of course, were restored. The Wenchard's Leal was, project was restored. And, and the idea was that, you know, in the 1980s, you had a new kind of crisis, which was the post-Mao crisis of, of what was the Communist Party. It was actually a much more, probably deeper crisis, in a sense, of, of ideological legitimacy, especially because not only had the Communist Party uh, endured this uh, devastating cultural revolution, but also... Um, it was now trying to reinvent itself in in uh, semi-capitalist market liberalization, market reform terms, which then uh, really seemed to contradict its its identity as a communist party, uh, mm. and also at the same time trying to uh, bring about political nationalist reconsolidation while also reintegrating itself into the international community. Uh, and so you had these various contradictions and tensions that arose at this moment in the early 1980s. And the Wenchard's Leal was seen by the party and by the PPCC as a very important part of a broader campaign and project to reconstitute the party, um, recon- right. reconsolidate the party, and somehow try to mend together these fractures. 
Right, right. And I think, you know, you can see why these kind of uh, challenges would be particularly difficult up in this region, which has Mm -hmm. such a complicated history and a complicated relationship to the uh, China entity, which the Mm -hmm. Communist Party presides over. You know, I think um, you bring out pretty well how this raised its own challenges uh, in relation to this this new uh, drive of the project. Um, I just wonder, uh, kind of uh, slightly uh, methodologically speaking, um, what do these documents actually look like? I mean, what, what, when it comes to uh, analysing them as historical sources, these one should say, oh, you mentioned the mm-hmm. archives you go to. I mean, what, what physical form did they actually take as they were produced? Were they mass printed? Were they published as, as things that looked like books? Or are these things kind of, uh, you know, curly... Mm-hmm edged uh, tea leaf colored or tea colored <laughs> or parchment or I, I don't know maybe this is the, the non-historians naivety coming out but could you just say a bit more about the sort of material dimension to these things yeah so the Winchard Sayal actually did come out in the form of uh, paperback books essentially uh, and so and so there were various issues or, or volumes um, of each mm-hmm. of Winchard Sayal um, of course I when I went through all the different uh County variations of the Wenchard Slayal. I was always very excited when I saw that there were maybe nine or ten volumes, right, of this Wenchard Slayal mm. from the 1980s, as opposed mm. to some smaller um, towns uh, where it might just have one volume or something like that. Uh, but and so you could kind of get a sense of which counties were were more excited <laughs> about the project than others, uh, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, um, they were they were books, uh, and. So in terms of the circulation, uh, they were initially in the early 1980s internally circulated. So they were not uh, mass produced. Uh, they were, it was called naval fashion, basically uh, kind of internal circulation, which meant that they were printed on a fairly small scale and then distributed internally to various party organizations. It might be to a few uh, Possibly to a few universities, but mostly within the party and PPCCs and uh, and so forth that would then use them as reference materials. Uh, and over the course of the 1980s, they gradually there was a gradual transition uh, toward more open circulation, uh, and they even would would then have some uh, uh, some bookstores, for instance, that would be specialized in selling Winchester's Leal and so forth, and they would try to establish circulation networks to increase circulation. But uh, so now the question is, uh, first of all, why, why they were internally circulated first and, uh, and what would have been the, the reason and impact. So uh, first of all, beyond the Winchard Slayal, a lot of materials were internally circulated. Um, that was in the early 1980s, especially, uh, especially in this region in terms of uh, when it came to topics such as Sino-Russian or Sino-Soviet relations along the mm. border, uh, then those books would generally be internally circulated, not openly published for the public. Now, uh, so this this was a way to, of course, contain, and you know, in case there was anything that was politically sensitive, um, it was a way to to contain it uh, and, and keep it within party control. But I think there are a couple of things that are important to keep in mind about naval fashion, because I think when I first thought about this, I thought, well, that, that basically means that uh, they really weren't doing much with these you know, materials. Uh, mm. But in, in fact, uh, that's not quite the case. So first of all, uh, the internal circulation provided a framework that allowed the writers 
uh, and the informants of the project to be more experimental. Uh, right. So, so the uh, for instance, the the Hungarian writer Harazdi, uh, uh, he talked about uh, in hung in Hungary talked about uh, how there were certain modes of discourse that were kind of along uh, the fringes of what was acceptable politically um, by the government. And mm. in the case of the Wenchers Leal, the the naval flashing, the the internal circulation framework allowed for certain topics, certain narratives that might be uh, kind of going going over over the boundaries, across the boundaries of what was politically acceptable or, or comfortable for the party um, mm. to actually, you know, to actually produce this uh, mm. and and not simply censor it out um, or, or destroy it. Um, right. Secondly, there was the issue of funding. Um, sometimes they just didn't have enough funding for mass production. Um, but another thing that they did was that even within the framework of naval flashing, uh, they also would would selectively uh, publish certain Wenchardsleal articles um, in newspapers, uh, in let's say, for instance, military journals. Um, uh, theatrical companies might use them as reference materials for their plays. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, uh, schools, elementary schools, high schools would use them as educational materials. Uh, And so they were selectively utilized uh, for mass political campaigns, essentially, uh, and mass propaganda information. Um, But it allowed that naval flashing sort of allowed the the party to maintain some kind of control over it. Um, Also, at times, uh, like in 1985, when they had the uh, 40th anniversary of Japanese surrender, they would then publish uh, certain Wenchard's Leal that had the theme of um, that theme to coincide with the anniversary and thereby kind of increase visibility of the Wenchard's Leal. Right. Wow. Um, so, so they're kind of they're kind of hovering in between a great deal in, in their role, the role that they're playing within China and in relation to power itself, it, it, it seems. I mean, they're both somehow kind of secret, but also not entirely secret, both uh, revealing things or certain uh, truths about historical experience that, in a way, you know, I think we see this produ- reproduced across many top-down political contexts, whether it's uh, the Soviet context uh, slightly earlier or, or uh, indeed in mm-hmm. China, right, right up to now. It's that the you know the party wants to know about what what's bothering people because mm-hmm. it needs to keep a keep a grip on things. But also, it's not very comfortable if those things that are bothering people are widely discussed. So there's a constant kind of tension playing out in how. How public things should be, how much people should be allowed to express, and in what context uh, they, they can make their kind of uh, true thoughts, if you like, or you know, problematic, although such an expression is uh, known. Um, but I just wonder, uh, in this kind of in betweenness or this, this ambivalence about these documents, uh, particularly, for example, in relation to some of the literature that was being produced, the the, the, the the, the kind of autobiographical literature that mm-hmm. also was blossoming after the Mao period. I wonder mm. about for for the historian. I mean, how do you treat these uh, the accounts that are contained within these uh, documents? Um, I, you know, obviously, given their sort of uh, politically sometimes ambivalent position, um, how do you actually approach the content as historical material? Yes, well, that's that's a really interesting question. So. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting because as you say, there is this kind of in-betweenness, 
uh, and it allows for a certain amount of room uh, for exploring topics that, again, the party might uh, feel is is kind of delicate. So when I when I began uh, working with the Wenchard's Leal, and before I was able to access the internal documents of the Wenchard's Leal committees uh, and PPCC committees that actually talked about sort of the logic behind why they were collecting certain materials, why they were, how they were conducting interviews, uh, and what sort of topics they wanted to to focus on. Um, at, the, at first, when I just kind of looked at the Wenchard's Leal themselves, I was uh, became struck by certain seeming inconsistencies within the narrative um, that seemed inconsistent and contradictory at, at, at the beginning. And, and then as after thinking about it a little bit longer, I could sort of see maybe a broader logic for it. Um, and just to give an example, so in 1900, there was known, something known as the Black Overstance Massacre, where Russian officers, uh, uh, in reaction to the Boxer Uprising uh, that was going on in China, that sort of seeped its way up to the Northeast, uh, Russian officers rounded up uh, several thousand uh, Chinese who had migrated across the Russian border, across the Timor River, into Vladivostok, which is which was a Russian border town, uh, and where a lot of Chinese had had, migra- had settled to uh, as traders, and uh, and dumped them into the Amur River uh, mm-hmm. and drowned them. Uh, and so this was, of course, a horrendous event that that happened within just the span of a few days, uh, and. So there were several Wenchard's Leal accounts that dealt with this incident. Uh, and so uh, there were, in particular, three, three uh, informants who were survivors of the event, um, who described various aspects of it. And then the editor uh, framed sort of the introduction. He wrote kind of the introduction, um, just as you introduced this interview. <laughs> he introduced uh, these these uh, informants' accounts, and and I noticed what I felt was kind of a discrepancy between the introduction and the accounts themselves. Uh, the introduction was very much focused on the Russians and the Russian, uh, how atrocious the Russian actions were. Uh, this imperialism, uh, this victimization of the Russian people, and the Russian people being kind of hapless victims, uh, and. And then when I read the accounts themselves, there was actually very little uh, about the Russians themselves. And in fact, the vast quantity, the vast major, uh, majority of, of, of what was written in the narratives was really celebrating Chinese migrant enterprise mm-hmm. uh, and celebrating the fact that uh, that these Chinese had basically kind of taken over Blagovesensk, essentially. They had occupied the streets with all their shops and stores and markets and uh, and that had essentially had made it into a Chinese city, uh, mm-hmm. essentially. And, uh, and there really wasn't uh, much about the Russians themselves. And mm-hmm. so I thought, well, that's kind of strange. You know, why would the, why would the editor, uh, you know, introduce something focusing on the Russians? And it seems that there is a total contradiction, you know, with what's going on in the accounts. But as I thought about the context more, it seemed to me kind of a, a brilliant uh, intermeshing of narratives, um, that on the one hand, you had the framework that is providing a nationalist framework uh, and uh, you know, anti-imperialist nationalism that is then um, framing or juxtaposed with uh, this narrative celebrating uh, Chinese 
enterprise, uh, mm-hmm. private enterprise, uh, and enterprising spirit that then fit into the post mal market reform ideology of mm-hmm. uh, celebrating, uh, you know, the getting rich and market enterprise and so forth. Um, and so I saw this this really I thought a brilliant uh, kind of interweaving of narratives um, in this in this one Um yeah. Now, in terms of the in-betweenness of the actual kind of circulation um, of it, uh, so this poses an interesting question. And I think that, again, I think that the, the, that form of that approach to circulation and publication allowed for the party to maintain, maintain some control over what was to be released. But I think we have to keep in mind that the the purpose um, of these accounts was always to be releasable, to be publishable at some point, um, and uh, whether it would be in, in in to to coincide with certain anniversaries or uh, or to be framed in a certain way uh, for uh, for certain purposes. But uh, even though it was within that naval fashion, that internal circulation uh, framework. I think that very much the editors and uh, informants were collaborating in in a venture of mutually constructing a narrative that uh, was very consciously fitting into a certain ideological framework as well. Right, right, and I think well, I think uh, that uh, pretty uniquely sums up in some ways the uh, concerns of uh, the, the, both the introduction and the first part of the book here, <clears throat> where you're kind of, uh, outlining the um, uh, post mao transition era and, and the kind of mm-hmm. uh, political and cultural landscape uh, as it shifts uh, under that. Um, and you've already uh, alluded to some of the concerns of uh, the next couple of chapters, two and three, which really look at this kind of borderland area and the, the ambiguous situation mm-hmm. that the recent past of the region presented within this new uh, political and narrative context. Um, so uh, I just wonder uh, if we could uh, discuss a little more some of these questions of how this troublesome history of uh, both Japanese and Russian influence and colonialism, um, the the Chinese expansion, which you know, uh, g- given the uh, importance of the idea that China hasn't hasn't invaded or hasn't attacked anyone, somehow it's become this enormous country, but in the but but not by expanding <laughs> somehow. You know, I, it's, uh, I, I'm still looking into how that's possible. Um, but uh, <laughs> I wonder if you could uh, say a little bit more about how some of these ambiguities were dealt with. Uh, in the narratives that emerged in the Wunsch of the Liao, um, the, the kind of reconstitution of, of the nation and, and the explanations of why uh, Chinese people were up there uh, in, in the far northeast uh, and, and how relations with Russia, the Soviet Union and so on were treated um, broadly. Sure, yeah. Um, so nor- this region of northern Manchuria, as you, as you pointed out, was a very messy region historically. Uh, there were competing modernization projects of first the Qing government uh, under the Manchus, and then after 1911 uh, with the revolution, uh, uh, continuing with the Chinese warlord governments uh, that were based in southern Manchuria but extended their reach into northern Manchuria. Um, and so that kind of Chinese driven modernization project competing with Russian modernization projects um, in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and, and of course, uh, then also with Japanese 
uh, colonialism that uh, that extends its way up there starting in 1931. Um, although my focus is really focusing more on that kind of, and I think that the Wenchard's Leal uh, accounts also focus more on the period of Russian influence um, mm-hmm. in the region. And so it does pose a real problem, or it seemingly would pose a real problem for uh, for the Chinese nation state in terms of of a region that had been, in a sense, outside of the nation, um, that this was a region that was really dominated by Russia uh, and by Russian colonialism. And although the party operated there and uh, starting 1930s and, uh, well, first I, I would say Russian colonialism and then Japanese colonialism in 1930s. So really uh, it was a region that seemed to be uh, outside of, of the control of the Chinese nation or, out, or beyond the, the, the boundaries of the Chinese nation. And again, um, if you look at the discourse uh, of the Chuangguandong or bursting through the past discourse of migration and how officials talked about the Northeast in general, but particularly this part of the Northeast and the far Northeast, um, it really was kind of talking about this area as, as outside of China proper. In fact, they used the term China proper um, mm-hmm. as distinct from uh, the Northeast. And in fact, even today, there's uh, if you if you ask people about the Northeast, there's still this sense of kind of a distinctiveness of the region as being somehow different. Usually, in a rather derogatory manner, they usually refer to the Northeast people in the Northeast as being uh, somewhat wild, savage, crude, uh, mm-hmm. and so forth, which really kind of fits into the whole narrative of the wild frontier. Uh, and uh, and so, of course, the people are then, you know, that whole narrative of Chuang Guanlong then kind of, in a sense, continues to inform um, the way people see the region today. In fact, there was recently, not long ago, there was a, a, a very popular uh, TV series called the Chuang Guanlong um, series mm. that, that talked mm. about um, uh, about this uh, this migration of the Northeast. But in any case, uh, so so it did pose a problem. But what's interesting is that. Uh, from what I learned as I was reading the Winchard's Leal and, and analyzing the documents is that this problem became an opportunity um, for the party state. That, um, and, and I think this, I, I want to kind of make it clear first that this is distinctive from what was going on in the northwest and southwest borderlands of, of Xinjiang and Tibet, where mm. the problem of ethnic unrest uh, and resistance to the Chinese state expansion by the Tibetans and Uyghurs, which continues today, um, was for the Wenchard's Leal a major problem uh, and something that uh, uh, was a major problem because you had this this bifurcation, this confrontation between these uh, indigenous ethnic groups and the Chinese state that viewed the Chinese state as a an invading colonizing power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the case of the Northeast, however, this was different. First of all, uh, the the Manchus themselves were not really uh, a problem or a threat uh, to uh, well. First of all, the Manchus had, of course, uh, been rulers of the Qing Dynasty, but um, but also and then actually driven in the in 19th century, the Manchus had actually helped to drive um, policies that would help Chinese migrate to the region uh, to thwart Russian expansion. But also uh, then with the Chinese warlord regimes and then the Japanese regime later. Uh, the Manchu identity increasingly dissipated uh, and became less uh, uh, less important, you might say, politically in some ways, or less less uh, potent. 
Uh, you had the other ethnic minority groups like the Olenchen and, and Hoja that I mentioned before, but very, again, very small numbers uh, and not really a political threat. Um, and the only real threats to the region had been the Russians and the Japanese, which were not a threat uh, anymore. But not only were they not a threat anymore, but, uh, but they were an external threat to which all Chinese could then be viewed as a unifying force against them, against mm. the Russians and the Japanese. Mm. Uh, and so whereas in the case of Xinjiang and Tibet, where, for instance, uh, uh, the question of, of how, to, you know, how to incorporate the Uyghurs into the Chinese nation was a major problem uh, because they're trying to resist the Chinese nation. In the case of uh, the Northeast, the argument could be made that uh, that the Russians and Japanese could serve as a kind of a unifying force for then uh, remembering all of the Chinese in the region of the Northeast as being a kind of a um, in united opposition and nationalist right. opposition. Right, and this reveals, in a way, I think, pretty intriguingly how, or, or importantly, how recent a lot of the uh, dominant narratives of Chinese for political historiography are in, in many mm. regards. I mean. The, 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 the assumption, I think, is often made that, well, Japan invaded in uh, the 30s and 40s, and since then, you know, J China has been uh, officially united against this uh, legacy of uh, foreign imperialism and so mm -hmm. on. Um, but uh, I, I, I think what you show uh, pretty clearly is that um, even as recently as the 80s, there was so much uh, contingency and discussion um, which meant, which operated differently in all kinds of different regions. Um, that, that only more recently has kind of coalesced into a pretty solid uh, monolithic narrative about that past. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's also uh, interesting what you what you bring out about uh, the, the the kind of centering of the borderlands, if you will, the fact that um, this uh, complicated past did represent an opportunity. Um, and I think we might see this in an interesting light in relation to some of the other uh, cultural trends that emerged uh, in the wake of the Maoist political campaigns and so on, uh, namely this kind of search for salvation narrative, search for, uh, I know that uh, in, in other literary contexts, there was this desire to find real men, to find saviors, mm. strong um, figures, redemptive figures, uh, who were often sought in the countryside or in the kind of wilder places of China. Mm. In a sense, it's interesting to think about how the Northeast served this purpose uh, as, a, as a kind of almost redemptive place where uh, the, the new concerns of the new political order could all be kind of brought together. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, uh, as I say, I think you, you bring all of that out pretty, uh, pretty fascinatingly uh, in, in the first sort of uh, half of the book. Um, but as we move on uh, into the kind of uh, discussion that you have in chapters four, five and six of the uh, production of the Wunschert Zerliau and some of the narrative and uh, editorial decisions that were made, um, I wonder, could you say a bit more about what the uh, changes going on at the time were in relation to history, historiography, the narratives of history itself and things like periodization, uh, the approach to facts and so on. Um, what kind of changes were occurring and how are they uh, evident in the Wunschert Ziliao? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so if we look back, well, first of all, um, one of the, the main slogans um, that's quite famous, uh, seeking truth from facts, uh, which was popularized under Deng Xiaoping, uh, and this, uh, which which usually is associated with this uh, 
with liberalization and attempt to kind of move away from ideology and propaganda and political campaigns to a more objective scientific basis for rational governance. Uh, and in fact, this slogan or this idea, concept of seeking truth from facts uh, has a long history in China going back uh, to the Mingqing transition uh, in the uh, 17th century where after the Manchu invasion, Chinese Ming loyalists were trying to understand why the Ming fell. And so they were trying to go back to find original uh, Confucian historical documents to, to get at the true, um, you know, true authentic historical or true authentic history uh, in order to understand uh, themselves better and in order to have some kind of a critical self-reflection. And then again, in the early 20th century with colonial European colonial modernity, um, there was another big campaign of seeking truth from facts in the, in, uh, in the, the case of uh, social surveys, social survey collections, try to, to collect social facts uh, from the countryside, from various localities in order to establish a rational evidence-based uh, basis for building a new modern nation. Uh, mm. and, uh, and then under Mao, um, Mao in some ways continued this uh, with his investigative research or Dialcha. Uh, and this idea of trying to combine scientific evidence-based evidence uh, truth and fact-collecting with political mobilization uh, and indoctrination. And uh, how to kind of bring these together. So the, the very act of, of sending intellectuals down, down to local uh, villages, for instance, villages, for instance, to uh, collect social facts would itself be a process of indoctrination and mobilization of the intellectuals and of the people at that level. Mm. Now, uh, during the Maoist period, the way that history was conceived of was largely, uh, as they refer to um, equal sitian, for instance, kind of remembering the bitterness um, and thinking about the sweetness of the present communist uh, liberation. Mm. Uh, and uh, so there would be a kind of a, a, a common dividing line between the pre-1949 sort of feudal, backward, oppressive times and the post-1949 liberation. Um, now, after 1978, after Mao's death um, and the new reforms, the Communist Party was trying to reinvent itself as, uh, as a driver for modernization and uh, economic liberalization and uh, and so, in order to do that, the the Communist Party had to oscillate between two kinds of narratives. One was continuing in that in that kind of liberation narrative, uh, mm -hmm. and the other, actually the opposite, kind of focusing on continuity across the 40, 1949 period, and actually celebrating the pre nineteen forty nine period as a period of um, of dynamic enterprise and modernization and so forth that was continuous um, throughout the period of Chinese history uh, and, and culminating now or continuing in the 1980s. And so you had these two kind of competing narratives in a sense of history of modernization narrative and revolutionary narrative or liberation narrative. Uh, mm. And in the context of the Northeast, when they were collecting these Wenxu Liao, uh, they 
then were able to, or at least they attempted to, integrate these two different narratives. Uh, so, uh, for example, they would uh, continue sometimes to talk about the pre-1949 period as being oppressive uh, and then focus on sort of the party's liberation and developments after 1949. But then they used the narratives and the, uh, of various former entrepreneurs uh, to celebrate the pre-1949 period in their lives when they were becoming entrepreneurs as to show this kind of continuation of modernization across the 1949 divide. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the, the participants in the Wenchenslau themselves, and th I think this is really important, is that um, they what made the Wenchenslau, I think, so fascinating, but also powerful um, and interesting from the perspective of individual agency was that the people who participated were able to navigate and appropriate the various uh, fissures and, and uh, complexities of post-Mao ideology um, mm -hmm. to tell their stories in a way that would then reconcile different aspects of their own lives. Uh, right. So uh, they, uh, for, you know, they would, they would kind of tell their stories in a way that on the one hand, would uh, would tell a story that would uh, show the oppressiveness of the old order. Other in other at other moments in the narrative, they would they would celebrate the pre nineteen forty nine period, but they would do all of this in a way that would then um, fit into their own life narratives, into their own mm -hmm. life histories, and mm -hmm. uh, and so in other words, the the broader post mal dilemma of how to reconcile um, its various ideological purposes in the nineteen eighties then became appropriated and became a kind of a, a, uh, a landscape for these narrators, for these participants to tell stories in the way that they want to tell the stories. Right. I know you bring all that out in really fascinating detail with lots of uh, rich excerpts from uh, the one should really our texts <clears throat> themselves. And uh, yeah, really incredibly interesting cases of uh, examples of how people are bringing uh, into the picture these grand new historical themes, um, mm -hmm. dividing up, for example, history into the old society before 1930s, the Japanese occupation from the 30s mm -hmm. to 40s and the post-liberation era, uh, but then kind of dancing around uh, these grand schematic representations um, and, and peppering their own, their own narratives with uh, allusions to this. Um, I think, it, yeah, it kind of encapsulates precisely the kind of ambivalences and, uh, and in-betweennesses that, uh, that, that you discuss in the book as a whole. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, I would encourage listeners to uh, uh, pick up a book and uh, go and, and delve into that more deeply. Um, but then finally, uh, in the book as a whole, um, you talk about the kind of uh, broader uh, local, regional and national dynamics of the mm -hmm. production. Um, and so uh, I wonder, how does this make us think differently about uh, these different levels. I mean, this is the, these are the levels on, on which the party organizes itself, so we don't want to uh, subsume our thinking entirely to, to those, kind of, uh, those kind of categories. But um, how does this kind of make us uh, see these uh, different senses of belonging and identity within China in a different way, um, and, and in particular in relation to the Northeast? Absolutely, yeah. So I think that there are two 
as you um, kind of indicated, are kind of two levels to to look at. Uh, one is perhaps some relations between the center and the borderland, um, and another is relations between uh, sort of local, regional, national, uh, or bottom up and top down uh, kind of processes of, of governance. And uh, so, first of all, in terms of bottom up and top down, uh, one of the one of I think the really uh, powerful features of Wenchuslial was that it was, I think, really able to uh, bring together uh, and synthesize uh, bottom-up and top-down processes. Uh, on the one hand, it was certainly top-down. This was, you know, initiated at the national level by the national PPCC uh, and where where the top party leaders, including uh, Joe and Lai's wife, Dung Ying Chao, uh, kind of formulated the basic principles Right, uh, which she actually talked about as sort of the active and passive principles of Wenchard Slayal. Um, mm-hmm. Passive referring to kind of the research aspect, although I don't really think of research as passive. But, um, but uh, in any case, uh, and then the active process of being kind of political mobilization. And and she saw this as a really unique feature of the Wenchard Slayal that it actually combined these passive and active features. Uh, in any case, <clears throat> so there this there was certainly the top down feature, but then. Uh, as with other aspects of post-mal reforms devolving responsibility down to local level, there was a real encouragement of local initiative. And, uh, and so at the local level, then, they really did, uh, in many ways, take this project into their own hands uh, and appropriate it for their own purposes to celebrate local identities, to redefine liberation and heroism uh, in borderland-centered terms. Uh, and uh, and so there was this constant kind of a back and forth between local, regional, and national levels. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, as I mentioned, at the national level, they, they uh, at least rhetorically, really encouraged uh, local initiative. At the provincial level, uh, there, it was interesting because the organizers there often talked about quite, in a quite derogatory manner about uh, how disorganized uh, the Wenchurch Lyle committees were at the local level, at the county level. Uh, and it was scattered, they were backward, they didn't know what they were doing, and so they required, uh, you know, the enlightened input of the provincial organizers to kind of send down teams of people, kind of like work teams, uh, to investigate and intervene in the process and help guide them in terms of how they should be uh, processing these winters. And then you even had some reports from local level complaining about these work teams and saying that they just wanted to get their work done and they didn't want to be disrupted constantly um, by these work teams. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so there was sometimes this friction, but um, but in many ways there was also a kind of subtle collaboration and appropriation. So you know the provincial uh, committees would send down sort of general guidelines for what sorts of themes to talk about. The, uh, at the local level, they would then um, flesh it out and uh, and use it to uh, to bring out uh, certain features that they really wanted to highlight. And then certain volumes uh, at the local level, certain volumes of Wenchard's Leal that that the provincial and, and national levels deemed particularly interesting and appropriate and politically uh, effective would then actually be sent up to the provincial and national levels and mm-hmm. and published in national volumes and provincial mm-hmm. volumes of Wenchard's Leal. So uh, 
So I guess it would have been every county one committee's dream to have their, you know, their volume <laughs> published at the provincial or national level. Uh, but in any case, you had this kind of really interesting sort of back and forth. Um, yeah. It was always, you know, somewhat perilous, you might say, for the party to try to be in control. But at the same time, uh, this kind of initiative, this kind of flexibility and openness and, and redefinition of of, of things in a borderland center terms was also really necessary, I think, um, from the perspective of organizers at the national level to, um, to give this project animation, to give this, right. uh, the people involved a sense of ownership. Right. And I think that, yeah, that sort of two-way traffic, <clears throat> as you mentioned, through these various levels of elevation and locality, uh, give us a pretty uh, interesting new way of looking at both, yeah, as you mentioned, center periphery kind of relationships, but also uh, top, top and bottom, or you know, it, that's a, it's a bit of a, <laughs> I don't know, it can have its own derogatory um, uh, connotations to imply that people in in local areas are at the bottom of some something. But uh, in any case, um, I just wonder, very lastly, uh, you you conclude with some pretty interesting thoughts about. Uh, I, I, I think you quote a librarian who made some comments to you during your research about how. Uh, this era of Wunschadziliau back in the 80s was somehow more authentic and more real. Um, the Wunschadziliau project continues and, and these kinds of um, these, these uh, research exercises continue to be a part of how the party operates uh, on the local level. Um, but of course, we're in a very different political environment now and one which uh, in certain regions of China, uh, notably Xinjiang and Hong Kong, is extremely fraught. So mm-hmm. I just wonder... Uh, what, what your thoughts were on the kind of enduring importance of these kind of uh, operations to mm-hmm. the way that the Communist Party operates, um, the importance of writing and documentation to how uh, the party tells its story and, 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 seek, and, and seeks to you know, retain its, its grip on power. Um, what's, mm-hmm. the, what's, the, what's the sort of uh, 2019 situation or 2015 or <laughs> however recently <laughs> you have some insight into that? Sure. Um, yeah, there, absolutely. As you mentioned before, uh, while I was doing my, um, actually my dissertation research, uh, the librarian in the, in the provincial library in Liaoning was kind of commenting on how the, the new batch of Winters Liao were just not as interesting, um, as the, as the old batch. They just didn't have the, uh, the, um, the colorfulness, the, the detail, uh, they just didn't really have as much substance as the old Winters Liao. And I kind of was wondering about that. Uh, and I myself um, have not read too much of the the new batch of Wenchertsliao. Although I, um, another scholar who has been um, looking at Wenchertsliao in the Qinghai uh, Tibetan region, um, has commented, as I mentioned in the book, that he saw a difference um, where the earlier batch was more uh, openly kind of uh, accommodating a united front. Uh, sort of cross-section of different perspectives, whereas a new batch was more party-centered mm-hmm. and, and more constrained. Uh, and I would say that what I would say is that the 1980s was a moment uh, when, and I think it's important to say this, that the party was not you know, relaxing its control. In the 1980s, I don't think that the party was was trying to kind of give up control or let, you know, let others, let other parties or organizations somehow uh, uh, take over some control from the party. I think that the that it was a moment that was almost by necessity um, because of its its crisis situation saw it as necessary to uh, 
to accommodate different voices and different perspectives in order to reconcile and work out the tensions between the different aspects of post-Mal ideology. Uh, and the Northeast, where the Wenchard's Leal was, was started uh, in, the, in northern Manchuria, uh, in Harbin, uh, was a really kind of unique landscape for doing this because of the messy history um, mm-hmm. of the borderland. And so, uh, and this brings me back, I just wanted to kind of briefly uh, mention, since I had forgotten to mention sort of borderland center relations, that the borderland really was at the center, right, of of nation building. Um, mm-hmm. This messiness of the borderland was not just a kind of uh, peripheral, periphery uh, removed from or in opposition to the center, but it really was actually a space uh, where the party uh, and party organizations tried to work out the, uh, the issues with party governance um, mm-hmm. and find an experiment with new ways to understand its, uh, its identity, historical identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what I would say is that uh, that with the narrowing uh, the narrowing forms of and more rigid forms of authoritarianism that I see and I think many people see developing in China today, uh, that um, that this period of nineteen eighties this this f- approach to to a kind of a multifaceted uh, historical narrative would be something that uh, the party should not forget about and mm-hmm. should, should be careful about abandoning. Uh, it might seem tempting um, in a powerful authoritarian government to simply stomp out anything that seems to be remotely uh, remotely uh, subversive or anything like that. But I think the danger there is that that, uh, that flexibility is lost. Right. Uh, and... Uh, and I think that that was really, I think the because actually, ironically, because of the crisis the party was in, it resorted to a very flexible form of authoritarianism. You might say mm-hmm. that uh, that I think was was brilliant, uh, right. was, was brilliantly articulated, and and I I think that 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 moment seems to have passed. Right. Well, I, I think it's because of precisely those insights that uh, the book is so worth reading. Um, perhaps for uh, I don't know. Perhaps you could. Post a copy off to John Nanhai, uh, and they might give it a give it a browse too. Um, in any case, Martin, <laughs> thank you so much for your uh, uh, insights and your um, appearance on the podcast today. Uh, before we uh, finish completely, I'll just ask you our <clears throat> traditional final question, uh, namely, what is it that you're currently working on? Yes, yeah, so I'm actually continuing to work on uh, the Northeast region, but now I've shifted focus toward the environment, uh, and partly inspired by an interview I had with um, and. Uh, an environmentalist who initially I wanted to interview him about the Wenchard's Leal actually because he was a historian, but it turns out he was also a forestry official. Uh, and I became fascinated with how the border dynamics with Russia, the uh, legacies of colonialism and migration and competing projects of modernization have informed uh, new developing discourses about environment and ecological conservation that are going on in the Northeast. Mm. Mm, fascinating. Well, that sounds uh, extremely, extremely profitable, and I know it's a, uh, you know, particularly intriguing way of looking at this this wild region, really, you know, approaching this area, which in many ways within China is seen as such a huge natural expanse. Yes, um, mm-hmm. the, the ecological um, dimension is 
of course, crucial. So that sounds like fantastic projects. Um, in any case, then, Martin, thank you so much again for appearing. Uh, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much, Ed. I, I really had a great time. And uh, listeners, thank you too for listening, as ever, to New Books in Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you very soon. <laughs>